Welcome back to Bibliography, a podcast for people who love a good to-be-read list. I'm David Kern here at Goldberry Books in Concord, North Carolina, and this is a conversation show about the way books make our lives richer. This week's guest is William Kent Kruger, author of award-winning novels like Ordinary Grace and This Tender Land, as well as the beloved Cork O'Connor mystery series about a detective who is part Irish, part Ojibwa. According to his website, Kruger has logged timber, worked construction, tried his hand at freelance journalism, and eventually ended up researching child development at the University of Minnesota. His fiction has received a number of awards, including the Minnesota Book Award, the Loft McKnight Fiction Award, the Anthony Award, the Barry Award, the Dillis Award, and the Friends of American Writers Prize. His last nine novels were all New York Times bestsellers. Ordinary Grace received the Edgar Award given by the Mystery Writers of America in recognition for the best novel published in that year. And the companion novel, This Tender Land, was published in September 2019, spent nearly six months on the New York Times bestseller list. His most recent novel is a prequel of sorts to the Cork O'Connor series. It's called Lightning Strike, and it's about O'Connor as a child. And if you find yourself getting caught up in that series of books, you're going to love this new novel. It's available now wherever books are sold. Kruger is a very kind man and a great conversationalist. So when we started this podcast, I knew pretty much right away that I wanted to talk books with him. So he was kind enough to sit down with me over Zoom a little while back as he was launching Lightning Strike. We got deep into it, and as always, there's lots of books to add to your list. So with that, here's my conversation with William Kent Kruger. Thanks for listening. Thanks for reading. But hey, thank you so much for being here on the podcast to talk about some books that you love. I'm a big fan of your book, so it's exciting to get to talk to you. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, David. Thank you for having me. Okay, so this is the first question that I start everybody with. Our listeners will know that it's coming. Do you remember the first book that you ever like truly fell in love with personally? Yeah, I do. Oh, absolutely. It's a, it's a story I tell, uh, I tell um, libraries when I do a library events. Here's the whole... St- do we have time for the whole story? Go for it. Go for it. <laughs> Tell the whole story. Okay. So when I was 12 years old, that was the summer between my sixth and seventh grade year. I was a Boy Scout. Okay. And that was the summer I decided I was going to get my reading merit badge. Okay. One of the requirements for the uh, the merit badge was that you had to spend some time volunteering in your local library. I was living in a little town in Ohio at that point. And I went to the library and then I made the arrangements. And when the time came, I showed up to do my duty. Now, this was long before they had computerized check-in and check-out. Do you remember, David? Right. You're too young. That little pocket thing that used to be oh. glued into the back cover of every book. I remember. It was, it was one of my favorite things about the library. I'd go look through them and see who checked things out and when the last time exactly, was and so forth. Exactly. Well, they put me to work date stamping the return books. They gave me this little black ink pad and a changeable rubber date stamp. And so for the first hour I was there, it was sort of ka-chunk, 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 yeah. ka-chunk, ka-chunk. And after an hour of that, the librarian uh, proceeded to walk my way and ask me a very librarian-esque question. She said, <laughs> Kent, what do you like to read? Well, the honest to God truth was, I like to read comic books, but I didn't right. want to tell her that. <laughs> uh, so I briefly considered lying to her, but there was that whole, a scout is trustworthy yeah. thing going on. 
So I told her the truth and without batting an eye, she said to me, have you ever read The Count of Monte Cristo? Mm. So I walked out of the library that day with that great Dumas classic under my arm and it came back about, yeah, I know it's huge, but I came back weeks later and checked out The Three Musketeers. And Mm. when I'd read everything by Dumas that our library had, I asked her, what should I read next? And she turned me on to H.G. Wells and Jules and Arthur Conan, all these great, but it, it began with The Count of Monte Cristo. What did you like about that book so much when you were 12 years old? It was immersive. Mm. Uh, I mean, as your point of um, viewers or listeners can't see this, but as you, as you indicated yeah. with your, your hands, it's a huge yeah. tome. Yeah. And I just sank deeply into the, into that story, into the setting and the characters and, uh, and the plot. And, oh, mm-hmm. I just loved it to death. And it was the first time I'd ever found myself so deeply in another place as a result of words. Mm -hmm. Has your love for that book uh, changed since then? Like, do you love it for different reasons now? And and how many times have you read it? I I haven't read it since. (laughs) Because as you point out, it's a huge tome. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Have you gained a deeper appreciation of it just over the years though? Like, has it changed in your memories? What I have gained from it more, more than the story itself is what it... Um, what it turned me on to, mm. um, what a great story could be, mm. how satisfying, how, oh, informative and adventurous and, yeah. uh, and everything that a great story ought to be. Yeah. So I, I, um, I've set it up on a pedestal. Maybe part of the reason I've never reread it is I don't want it to fall yeah. off that pedestal. Yeah. yeah. So did you then become a voracious reader? You said you made yeah. comic books from that day on? Yeah. And and all of those authors that I just named, Conan Doyle and and uh, H. G. Wells and Jules Verne, they you know in my uh, later adolescent, they they were my favorite authors. Yeah. Yeah. And then my father was a high school English teacher, and then I began reading more um, uh, more of the stuff that he insisted that I read, Hemingway, for example, yeah. or F. Scott Fitzgerald, or The Iliad and the Odyssey. And, yeah. You know. <laughs> so uh, on that note. Um, another question I'd like to ask is what role does reading what people would call the classics play in your sort of reading life? I think it was C.S. Lewis who famously said, you know, for every new book, read two old ones or read at least one old one or something like that. Do you have any kind of goals for reading what we'll just call old classic books? A ratio there? No, I don't have a golden ratio. Uh, <laughs> new books too old. Yeah, I do read more uh, contemporary novels simply because what I do requires it. Mm. Um, I am uh, I am a part of a community of mystery writers, and so I try to keep abreast of yeah. what my colleagues are writing for various reasons. Uh, also, the vast majority, honestly, the vast majority of my reading these days, David, are of what are called ARCs. You know that, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Reader copy yeah. uh, books that readers aren't going to see for another many, many months, but I've been asked to read them for dust jacket quotes. And that's probably 75 to 80% of what I read. Okay. My other reading is dictated by the fact that I have led for the last quarter of a century, uh, my church's book group. Okay. So every, every month I'm reading a book for the book group yeah. when I have an opportunity to read and, and I'm going to go back and read something of the classics. I have to, I have to be honest. Uh, I return to classics that have meant a lot to me. So yeah. I, every few years, I'll re- probably every other year, I reread uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, mm. Catcher in the Rye, yeah. um, Great Gatsby. Um, mm-hmm. 
the Red Pony and uh, a couple of other of, of uh, Steinbeck's works, mm. The Old Man and the Sea. Just to a remind sh- a shorter Steinbeck. <laughs> yeah, a shorter Hemingway. Yeah. Um, and I uh, just to remind myself of uh, the ground, the great grounding in American literature yeah. that we have. So there you go. So there, you just mentioned The Red Pony. And I think a lot of people will have been familiar with a lot of Steinbeck's work, but maybe less so that one. Why did that one? I've actually never read The Red Pony. Oh, well, it's, it's actually what amounts to a collection of short stories uh, that, that uh, Steinbeck put together um, mm. and, and in The Red Pony. Um, but it was, uh, I think it was my first Steinbeck, as a matter of fact. Okay. But I loved it because it was such a, in The Red Pony and in so much of, Steinbeck's work that's set in the Salinas Valley, you can see his heart in every line. And I mm. just loved his ability to evoke the Salinas Valley. I write profoundly out of a sense of place. And I'm sure in large measure, it's as a result of the appreciation I came to that particular element of a good story as a result of Steinbeck in particular. Mm. So talk about place. You know, I'm wearing a Milwaukee Brewers hat right now. <laughs> Although I live in North Carolina now, my family kind of moved south from the upper Midwest. And you're, you have books that take place in that sort of region of the country. And you mentioned you also live in Ohio. Do you have any books that you have turned to that you think um, really capture the Midwest or sort of the upper upper Midwest? I think, it's, you know, there's a sort of literary canon of Southern literature and California literature, Los Angeles, you know, the, the West. But I think sometimes the upper Midwest or the Midwest in general sort of gets forgotten in terms of the canon of American lit. But do you have any books that, that really capture that in your opinion? Yeah, uh, several, as a matter of fact. When I do have a chance to choose what I read, I often choose a Midwest author. Mm. Because I think there, I think it could make an argument that there's a Midwest sensibility, a Midwest voice in literature. It's a very spare voice, but very eloquent and rises significantly out of an, an understanding, I believe, of our relationship with this land we occupy. Here in the Midwest, uh, we take great pride in believing we shaped the land, but this land has also shaped us. Mm. So uh, Marilyn Robinson just writes beautifully mm. of, the, uh, of the Midwest out of Iowa. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the work of Kent Haroff. It's a little outside the Midwest. It's really the, the eastern plains of uh, Colorado. But his stories of small town life on the plains are just stunning. It's a plain song by him? Plain song, yeah. one of my faves. Plain song, Eventide, Benediction. Mm-hmm. Um, here in the Midwest, we, in Minnesota, we have a, a, a writer who's no longer with us, but a guy named John um, Hassler, whose novels of small town life in the Midwest are just absolutely wonderful. One of my favorite stories set in the Midwest is Dandelion Wine by Ray <laughs> Bradford, is set in Ohio, and uh, I absolutely love that. Um, so there, there are a few there. You know, if you want poetry, read um, James Whitcomb Riley. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ted Kuzer. Yeah, Ted, Ted Kuzer, one of my favorite poets. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, I love Kuzer's work. So evocative of... Uh, Nebraska, right? Nebraska. Yeah, the yeah. Nebraska area. Yeah. So you're talking about those ARCs, those advanced reader copies that you've been reading. Was there anybody that has written a, a newer mystery book that just took your breath away, surprised you? You know, maybe you'd never heard of them before, or maybe it's not even out yet, but just someone we should be on the lookout for. Yeah, two of them. 
Okay. Um, I have finished. We have uh, in the Twin Cities a really fine mystery writer named Matt Goldman. Uh, he's done a, a good mystery series, but he asked me to read an advanced reader's copy of his next novel will be out next year. And it's a standalone called Carolina Moonset. And I just love the story, really wonderful sense of place. And it's set in South Carolina mm-hmm. uh, and uh, in the Charles, I think the Charleston area. And it's just a, a terrific novel, great characters. Matt, Matt came to mystery writing out of television writing. He wrote for um, Seinfeld and Ellen. And so his oh, wow. is just second to none, okay. stunning. <laughs> so I, I highly recommend that to readers when it comes out next year. And I just got my hands on one of my new favorite authors in the genre. He's not so new anymore. Uh, a guy named Howard Michael Gould. His first novel, his debut novel, was a book called Last Looks, which introduced to readers one of the most unique protagonists to have come along, along in a long time, a guy named Charlie Waldo, who is trying to simplify his life and will only allow himself to have to have in his possession 100 things. And it's a it's a great dilemma for him then in an investigation when he has to pick up a piece of evidence and it needs to be held on to of the other 100 things. What does he give up? And I just got a hold of, he sent me a, an ARC of his uh, next novel in this series, uh, Pay or Play. And I haven't, I haven't eased myself into a novel this quickly in a very long time. <laughs> I, love, I love talking to writers who are discovering other writers because there's a, you know, there's a kinship because just understanding how difficult it is and how, how time consuming it is and how much work you have to put in to write a really good novel. And I think, you know, when someone gets really excited, it's fun to hear from them because you want to help these people get out there and get more known. And um, especially it seems like there's a kinship among mystery writers. And I've read, I always find that mystery writers are so like nice. <laughs> like, it seems like a lot of mystery writers are just nice people. Yeah, go figure. You know, we, <laughs> we perpetrate such mayhem in the pages of our books. And when you meet us, we're the nicest folks you can you get it all out. You get it all out in the books. <laughs> no. So, so speaking of this, how did, how did you, what, what, what inspires you to want to be a mystery writer? You've written, you know, how many books are in the Cork O'Connor series now? Uh, number 18 number. came out in August. Okay. Lightning Strike. Yeah, I thought yeah. I was getting close to 20. Yeah. So what, what made I, you yeah, want to do that? Total- I've written a total of 21 novels, but only 18 of them in the Cork O'Connor series. Right. And, you know, I turned to mystery writing um, when, when I went through a midlife crisis back in my very <laughs> early 40s. I, uh, up until that point, I'd been trying to write the great American novel a la Steinbeck and Hemingway. and wasn't doing a very good job of it. And uh, and went through this crisis uh, when I was about 40 years of age and and decided to hell with trying to write the great American novel. <laughs> I'll write something somebody might actually want to read. Yeah. <laughs> so I look around me to see what people read. David, do you know what everybody reads? Everybody reads mysteries. It's a genre whose appeal cuts across all socioeconomic levels. So I decided I'm going to write a mystery. Um, now, here's a, um, here's a confession coming from a mystery writer. Before I began to write mysteries, I didn't read them. <laughs> that was the influence of my high school English yeah. teacher father, who convinced me that mysteries were the poor stepchildren of literature. Mm. So I really didn't even read The Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew when I was growing up. So I had a lot to learn. Uh, It took me about four years to write my first manuscript, uh, the manuscript for my first novel in the Cork O'Connor series, Iron Lake. And when it uh, when it when my agent sent it out to New York City, a bidding war broke out between uh, publishing houses for it. And so I knew I was off and running as a mystery writer. So did you have to you hadn't been reading them? 
did you have to do like, uh, if you could push yourself through a course on mystery writing uh, and read a bunch of the classics? Well, I had been reading uh, classic mystery writers uh, for okay. a while, but I okay. never really thought of them as mystery writers. I just thought they were really terrific writers. Got it. Okay. Hammett and yeah. and uh, Raymond Chandler. I had been le- reading those guys for years, but I had never gotten into it and realized there was this whole genre uh, of mysteries, really. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I had a lot to learn. I, fortunately for me, one of the first guys I began reading so I could understand what mysteries were all about was a guy named Tony Hillerman. Mm. Uh, for those listeners who aren't familiar with uh, his work, he uh, was an icon in the mystery genre. He wrote a series of uh, novels that were set in the Four Corners area of the Southwest and that dealt significantly with the culture of the Diné, the Navajo. And uh, I thought he he created such a profound sense of place in his books and and wove such interesting cultural information seamlessly into his stories that when I decided I was going to write mysteries, uh, uh, I decided nobody was no nobody was working with the Ojibwe population here mm. in Minnesota in that way. So maybe I would give that a shot, and that's what really influenced me to begin writing the Cork O'Connor series in the way that I have. Mm. Did you then have to do? a lot of reading on the Ojibwe people and Native American people in general and, and how they participate in that culture that, in the place that you live in. And if so, can you point us towards a couple of books that people who might want to learn more about that could, could do? I mean, this has been a while now, but um, just curious, because I'd love to learn more about that. Sure. When I decided I was going to write about the Ojibwe, I knew about as much about the Ojibwe culture as most white folks do, yeah. which is nothing. Yeah. Uh, but I was a cultural anthropology major in college, so the idea of learning about this culture yeah. my was really exciting, intriguing. And, I, you know, I began in the way all academics began. I began by reading. So there are a couple of really good ethnographies out there uh, by a guy named William Warren and a woman named Frances Densmore. So if people really want to understand where the Ojibwe culture came from, those are pretty good. I mean, there are ethnographies written by white folks, but they're a pretty good exploration of the history of the Ojibwe culture. Um, And then I would say, you know, read the Shanab writers, uh, Basil Johnson and Gerald Visnor. Read Louise Erdrich, who's mm. uh, who's authentically Ojibwe and who yeah. writes beautifully about her culture. Um, yeah, so there you go. <laughs> what was the hardest thing about, besides just having to gain knowledge about trying to represent the Ojibwe culture in these novels that you're that you're writing? Well, to uh, make inroads into the Ojibwe community itself and form relationships that uh, created trust between me and those people in the Ojibwe community who uh, helped me with my work. Mm. Did, did you feel, I mean, I assume you, there's probably a sense of, we felt like there was a sense of responsibility. Did it, did it feel like pressure? Oh, not pressure, but certainly responsibility. Um, you know, I'm pa- every time I sit down to write a book in my Cork O'Connor series, I'm painfully aware that I'm a white guy I have no native blood in me whatsoever, not a drop. So I'm painfully aware that I'm a white guy trespassing on a culture not my own. So I work hard to get it right. Hmm. Um, I work hard to try to dispel those stereotypic images, um, Hmm. those prejudices that a lot of people continue to hold. And I try to point out to them in my stories that there are native doctors and lawyers and teachers and and nurses and healthcare workers and plumbers and wastewater people, you know? You yeah. did, but we're just uh, people like the rest of us. They simply have a culture that offers them a different 
cultural perspective than many of us have. But you know, um, Ojibwe people love and grieve and hope mm. in the same way everybody does. I mean, mm. when I'm writing about the Ojibwe at heart, I'm just writing about human beings. Yeah. So, say when you're trying when you're trying to discover the point of view or or the the character of Cork O'Connor, did you have to? think differently about it because you're representing someone who is part of that culture. He's half Ojibwe, right? In the books. Is that right? It's actually three quarter quarter and one quarter Ojibwe. Okay. Okay. So he is more Irish than he is Ojibwe, but he still is a man of mixed heritage. Yeah. He still has a foot in two different traditions and he's still trying to figure out, you know, he's never quite white enough for the whites or Ojibwe enough for the Ojibwe's. Yeah. So he's always trying to figure out where his unique path lies. But that wasn't difficult for me to tap into, David, because I think most of us are struggling yeah. Yeah. to figure that out. I think most of us, you know, even though I'm a white guy in a white uh, in a white majority, I still try to figure out who the hell I am yeah. in relationship to this culture, and yeah. to the other cultures that we uh, are involved with these days, and to the rest of the world. Mm. So in the new book, Lightning Strike, you give us Cork as, as a kid, as a, I guess a kid, he, you know. Adolescent. Yeah, He's adolescent. an adolescent. Yeah. What are some of your favorite books that are from the perspective of adolescent, of adolescence? Do you have any that you were, had in the back of your head while you were writing, or, or maybe you just go back to all the time? I mean, you mentioned To Kill a Mockingbird, of course, but. Well, To Kill a Mockingbird, of course, and The Red Pony, uh, which is about a kid growing up in the Salinas Valley. Um, a separate piece is one of my mm. favorite novels about adolescence, male coming of age. Um, oh, one of my favorite novellas of all time is uh, The Body by Stephen King, mm. which the uh, the movie Stand By Me was based on. And I think it may be the best evocation in literature of what it is to be 12 years old and have best friends. Do you read anything in particular when you're working on a book? Like, I mean, I assume you're no. working all the time, but... Yeah, I am. Uh, every once in a while, if I'm feeling really... I want to challenge myself. <laughs> the writer I turn to is Cormac McCarthy. <laughs> I never understand a Cormac McCarthy story, <laughs> but I love the way he tells them. And so I look yeah. at it stylistically. I look at what he does with cadence and rhythm and and structure in a sentence and structure in a paragraph. And mm. I just um, and and it inspires me to to reach a little farther in my own work. You have a favorite? I would say I really like Crossings a lot. And that's the uh, second in the Border Trilogy, right? Yeah. Right. Now that you mentioned that, in some ways, it, his books do have some of the tonal elements you get from certain kinds of mystery writers. Like you could see him writing a really good crime novel. Um, yeah. James Lee's work comes readily to mind. James mm. Lee's Burke's prose is lush, evocative, and dark, dark, dark. Just finished his. Just, just his like Cormac one. McCarthy's yeah. story. Dark, yeah. dark, dark. Do you ever. You know, I don't think of your books as being dark. Um, do I don't you ever, either. Yeah. Do you, I mean, do you ever feel like I want to write a darker novel, a darker mystery novel now, or is that just not who you are? Well, I wrote uh, a, a darker story. Yeah. Um, my very first standalone is a book called The Devil's Bed. It's a political, it's really a political thriller, but it's a very dark story. Mm-hmm. But in the end, as with all of my work, I hope that their readers close the book and there's a sense of hope. 
I always try to give a sense of hope because mm. I think that's important. Yeah. <laughs> I never, I hate closing a book and going, boy, that was a bummer. <laughs> uh, you know, so I want people to close the book and go, yeah, I enjoyed that. And I feel hopeful now. Yeah. Did you, okay. But do you ever, do you ever feel like you have to push back against it becoming unrealistic or too saccharine or something like that when you're trying to make sure that there's some hope in the story, but you also don't want it to be, you want it to recognize the darkness that is in the world and the, the context that a mystery novel has to, has to take place in. Well, when you uh, when you create the kind of darkness that most that many mystery novels uh, create, it really doesn't take a lot of light to you know seem bright. That's, yeah, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> so, but but you know, um, making sure that it's not saccharine, that it's not cliched, is yeah. an important issue. So yeah. that when Peter come out of it it's not like oh i've heard this before kind yeah. of a thing you want them to have had a um a significant emotional experience and at the end you want that emotion to be one of uh of relief or gratitude or or hope mm. are you uh do you, do, you, do you believe in writer's block because some writers I talk to they don't believe in writer's block and some people do yeah i believe in writer's block because uh, i have had a number of colleagues who have suffered through it i have not uh, but I know it's real. So let's just, I mean, you said you haven't suffered through it. Do you have days when you're, you're just like, I don't, I don't know what to do with this or this thing that I produced is terrible. And now I'm discouraged. <laughs> now, seldom does that happen. On the other hand, I wrote uh, an entire novel. I was contracted and paid a lot of money for an entire manuscript that in the end, I, I told my publisher, we're not going to publish uh, mm. because it, it really was not good. Mm. Um, and that was followed immediately by this tender land, which spent six months on the New York Times bestseller. So I, I a great lesson. Don't, you know, you don't have to publish a bad novel just because you're contractually obligated. You, know, yeah. you can do something different. When did you know it was bad? I struggled with that in a way that I've never struggled with any other manuscript. So all along it felt like it felt not not authentic in the least. Mm. Um and what I learned from that is is that uh you know, you have listened to your heart. And if your heart is saying, I'm not in this one, don't go there. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever had a book where you, you felt, you know, you were listening to your heart as you put it and you felt really good about it, but then people didn't necessarily respond to it the way you did? No. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's nice. <laughs> no, you know, my you own release it. Is, my own belief is just that if you write from the heart, if you're really writing from the heart, you connect with people and they yeah. get it and they, yeah. they appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. I have a friend who is a huge fan of your, of your books and uh, I'm sure he'll be listening to this. And uh, you know, one of the things that I think he has said that he likes about it is there's the mystery, but it's that sense of place that like holds the whole thing together. Um, is it hard ever to maintain that sense of place and, and, and the through lines through 18 books that are about one, the same place? Or well, I'll just ask like, I'll just leave it there. I mean, you got to do 18 of them. You got to try to keep that same, keep building that sense of place without losing what you built about it, about that place in the first, in the previous novels. Is that difficult? I have I haven't found it so, David. Yeah. Um, because uh, for me, from one novel to the next, there's a significant period of time. Uh, you know, if, it takes me about eight months to write a Cork O'Connor novel, and then I'm involved in the revisions and all yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah. 
by the time I launch into the next Cork O'Connor novel, I'm refreshed and ready to go. I try not to, when I'm, when I'm describing um, place in one of my novels set in the North Country, I always try to think of, okay, what haven't I pointed a reader's eye to before? What's yeah. a detail I haven't offered them? What's a sensual experience that I that I could take them into that I haven't offered them before? Um, and I have no trouble at all uh, continuing to write the stories in the North Country because it's it's an endlessly fascinating area for me. And I continue when I go up to do my research for it, discover new things about it. That I I'm not native up there, um, and so I am always looking at it with a fresh eye. The, but the moment I begin to feel like it's oppressive to write a Cork O'Connor story for whatever reason, I'm, I'm going to stop. Hmm. So was there, I mean, you mentioned you were interested in writing with the Ojibwe people, but not being native to to the place, what made you want to write mystery? I mean, you could have said a mystery novel anywhere. Yeah. So when I'm not, as I just told you, I'm not native to Minnesota. Uh, but after we, my wife and I moved here when we were about 30 because she had been accepted to the University of Minnesota Law School. And I was a nomad before that. I lived in so many different places. I never really had anywhere that I thought of as home. Yeah. But when we moved to Minnesota, you know, I knew I found home, David. I fell in love with this place. Mm. And shortly after we moved here, we began doing what every I live in St. Paul in the Twin Cities. We began in the summer doing what everybody in the Twin Cities does in the summer. We started vacationing up north in the beautiful North, Great North Woods. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, I discovered uh, at this place called the Boundary Waters. It is the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. It is the most most heavily used wilderness area in the country, but you would never know it when you're in there. Mm. Uh, and I fell in love with that place. And so I knew that this is what I want to write about. This yeah. place speaks to me. Mm. Um, and so I knew I was going to set it up north. When I took a really good look at the North Country, I realized you can't set a true story in the North Country of Minnesota without including the Ojibwe, the Anishinaabeg, as an element of the work because their influence up there is ubiquitous. It's it's everywhere and it's powerful. And that was a great decision to make. My, uh, I mentioned earlier, my family's from the upper upper Midwest, and my uh, my parents go to the North Woods of Wisconsin during the summer, yeah. and they just you know, get a cabin on a lake for a couple of weeks and get away from everything. It's, it is amazing part of the world. Very underrated. I feel like maybe it's best kept that way. <laughs> yeah. I, anybody who's listening, it's a terrible place. Yeah, to don't be. go there. Don't go there. <laughs> okay. I got a couple more questions for you. You got a few minutes. Sure. Okay. Um, if you were trying to create a mystery writers canon or, or course of reading for someone who says, you know, I've read a couple of Agatha Christie novels, um, but that's kind of about it. But I'd love to, you know, get get more into it. Um, what would you, could, could you put together a few different authors? Or I won't even ask you for the specific titles per se, unless something comes to mind. Um, but other than, you, you mentioned Tony Hillerman and you mentioned a couple of people, but what would be your sort of course of reading that you would put people through? Well, you know, that depends on what you want to read because American writer, uh, crime writers are very different from British crime writers. Yeah. Very different from the Swedish crime writers. Yeah. Know, yeah. The Scandinavians. Oh, dark, dark, dark. Yeah. Um, so it all depends on what the reader wants. You know, if, if you want, if you want American crime writing, uh, which is, you know, has its own 
peculiar elements to it. You know, you start off with uh, start off with Poe. Um, <laughs> some of Poe's short stories that are uh, yeah. you know, Murders in the Rue Morgue or um, uh, The Purloined Letter. Um, and uh, as you come forward, Wilkie Collins. Well, Wilkie Collins is is English. Never mind. Um, <laughs> Uh, but when you get to the American, uh, you know, I, I write out of the hard-boiled tradition because mm-hmm. I was reading Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett long before I knew they were mystery writers. As yeah. Yeah. But those are two great places uh, to begin there. Um, move on to James M. Cain, um, McDonald, John D. McDonald, and uh, both McDonald's, actually. Yeah, both McDonald's, yeah. <laughs> Ross and, and John D. And uh, and as you come forward into the more modern writers, read James Lee Burke, read uh, Dennis Lehane, uh, read read those writers who write profoundly out of a sense of place, um, mm-hmm. like Lehane and like um, uh, Burke and like the the writers, the great writers out of Wyoming these days, Craig Johnson and C.J. Box and Margaret Cole. Mm. Um, do, you, do you mentioned the British tradition? Is there anything that you particularly appreciate about that tradition, despite the fact that you kind of view yourself as coming out of the American hard boiled? Well, one of the things I like about the, the British mysteries that I appreciate is the sense of atmosphere. Um, yeah. I, the, <laughs> the, uh, particularly when you're thinking of uh, some of the great writers. Um, oh, who wrote My Cousin Rachel and uh, at a Momentary Blank. Uh, but I, I love the the sense of you know that that yeah. darkness that uh, the the fog and the mist and you know yeah. all of that. <laughs> that moor, and, the moors and, that, and stuff. You know if you if you're going to read mysteries, you, you got to read Arthur Conan Doyle. You mm. got to read Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. You can't be a true mystery lover without uh, developing an appreciation for Sherlock Holmes, the greatest uh, <laughs> yeah. ever. And has there ever been a greater uh, antagonist than Moriarty? I think not. Yeah. <laughs> Did you mean Daphne du Maurier, by the way? Daphne du Maurier, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Um, what book have you read the most? To Kill a Mockingbird. Okay. That was fast. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's the great American novel. I know it politically it has uh, come under fire uh, for a lot of reasons, and I understand that. But I still think it is the perfectly told story. It has powerful language, a profound sense of place, characters that will stay with you your entire life, important mm. themes. It's everything that a great novel ought to be. Mm. I was going to... Um... As I've been asking you questions, you've responded, you know, I'll say, is this difficult for you or whatever? And you'll say, no, not really. <laughs> um, do you, th- you mentioned earlier, you're kind of telling the story of how you came into the mystery writing. You said you had had a midlife crisis and then in your forties, that kind of took off for you. And you'd been trying to write this great American novel. Do you think that one of the reasons why you haven't had problems with those, those things that I've asked about is because you came into that? in your forties, like you had this experience of trying to write these other things, you learned who you were and then you're 40, this happened for you a little later. Whereas if someone had maybe dove in and dived into writing this way and when they were 24, they, they would have had to work some things out. This just occurred to me, you know, as we were talking. Well, I've always believed, you know, I'm pretty well grounded as a writer mm-hmm. and, uh, and I have had a lot of accolades come my way. Um, 
and I and I I try to remain balanced, and I think being an old guy helps a lot. That <laughs> I didn't uh, didn't publish my first novel until I was forty eight years old uh, helped as well. I I knew who I was. Once I began writing, I had discovered my voice. I, I had begun to discover who I am as a storyteller, and that really that really came to me dramatically with my two standalones, Ordinary Grace and This Tender Land. When I was writing those stories, David, I knew I had finally found the writer I was always meant to be. And these were stories I was always meant to write. Mm. But I have felt very comfortable just in ter- as a storyteller in, in the writing of the Cork O'Connor novels. Now, as I mentioned, there are elements of that that always cause me concern uh, because I'm writing yeah. about a culture not my own. But right. the stories yeah. themselves, I've always felt were um, constructed um, pretty nicely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll let you go. I know you got to get some work. I got one more question for you. This sure. is cool. This is what I end with everybody's, everybody's conversation with. Let's say you're, uh, let's say you're up in the North woods and uh, you somehow know you're going to get stranded. <laughs> Hypothetical situation. You know, you're going to get stranded and you can only take four books with you. It's a sort of Mount Rushmore of, of your favorite books. And, but you can only take four with you. You're going to be there for a month, say, and then you know, you're going to get rescued. So it's not that dire, but you're going to have to pass a month. And the only way you can do that is with books, but you can only bring four. What do you think you're going to bring along? Well, To Kill a Mockingbird, of course. I had a feeling that one was going to be one of the, <laughs> yeah. the answers. I would probably bring uh, The Old Man in the Sea. I'm endlessly appreciative of that that work of Hemingway, particularly. Hmm. Uh, I might bring uh, I might bring uh, Catcher in the Rye um, because I think that's just that's terrific on so many levels. Um, and I might bring uh, J.D. Salinger's Nine Stories. His okay. collection, yeah. Stories. J.D. Salinger's Nine Stories. When did you discover Salinger? Uh, when I was in high school. Um, that was probably, again, at the insistence of my high school English teaching father. <laughs> Got to read this book. So I read Salinger and really, uh, really appreciated that. As an adolescent, particularly appreciated that uh, story. Did your dad ever uh, come around to mystery writing as a fan? Yeah, he became, aside from my wife, probably my number one fan. That's cool. (laughs) That's great. Well, hey, thank you so much. Um, Good luck with uh, Lightning Strike and your your ongoing work. Love reading your stuff and really appreciate uh, your books and your time and your support of uh, independent bookstores. I know you're a you've been an advocate for them and all all independent bookstores everywhere appreciate when authors are you know helping us out. (laughs) So thank you. Well, every author owes a debt of gratitude to the independent booksellers because you're the people who hand sell our stuff. So thank you very much, David. Well, that was William Kent Kruger. The most recent Cork O'Connor book, Lightning Strike, came out last fall and is available wherever books are sold. Please do order from your local bookshop. But if you'd like to order from our shop, you can head over to bookshop.org slash shop slash Books. Or of course, we'd love to see you in the store. This has been Bibliography. I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for checking out our show. Hope you discovered a great new book to check out. Until next time, happy reading. Mm -hmm.